In our gospel text this morning, Jesus rebukes the two disciples on the road for not believing all that the prophets had said concerning him. He asked them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He then turns to Moses and the prophets to show them what they say concerning him. And again, later on in the chapter, he meets the eleven and shows them from the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Suffering and glory are what the scriptures proclaim about Christ. These two episodes are not the first time Christ had spoken of the necessity of his suffering and glory, according to the scriptures. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount Jesus using this same formula prior to his death on a number of occasions. All three have some variation on this phrasing, Jesus predicting his death prior to it. Something along the lines of, he began to teach them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. John also recounts Jesus predicting his suffering and his glory, according to the scripture, and that it's necessary for Christ to suffer and then be raised in glory. The apostles pick up this same formula in the book of Acts in their sermons using the very same sequence. Peter in Acts 2 shows from the Psalms how Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and how God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And in Acts 3, Peter says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then continuing on in his sermon, he says that Moses foretold the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. So for Peter, the message is the same. It is necessary that the Christ should suffer and be raised up in glory. Paul, in Acts 17, preaching to the Jews in the synagogue, reasoned with them from the scriptures. Acts 17 says that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And lastly, Paul again in Acts 26, when he's standing on trial before King Agrippa, says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So this morning, I want us to consider this sequence of suffering and glory. This is a pattern that was central to Jesus' own understanding of his life and how he interpreted the scriptures concerning himself. It's a pattern that the apostles focused on in their preaching of Christ and the scriptures. So I want us to look at a few of the ways that Moses... The prophets and the Psalms, in particular, 
predicted Christ's necessary suffering and glory. And then we'll turn and consider the meaning of Christ's suffering and glory. And then lastly, we'll consider how we, who belong to Christ and are in union with Him, are to share in that same suffering and glory. But first, in order to understand Christ, you need to understand the Hebrew Scriptures. Christ doesn't show up in a vacuum. He's not teaching a new religion that came out of nowhere. He's fulfilling what we now call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And Christ and the apostles taught that all of Christ's life, His death, His resurrection were spoken of by Moses, the prophets, and the writings. Everything in Israel's story was pointing forward to and leading up to Christ. Likewise, in order to understand the Old Testament most fully, you need to understand Christ's revelation of Himself. Christ's suffering and glory in His earthly ministry unlock the meaning of the Old Testament for us. These two things are mutually informing. The Old Testament is filled with types and shadows that speak about Christ, and Christ's life and death reveal the true meaning of the whole Bible. Not only specific prophecies or specific verses, but people, places, events, institutions, all of these find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Now, before you get worried, we're not going to try to unpack all of the law, the prophets, and the writings this morning. That would take more than a thousand sermons, much less a single sermon. But what I'd like to do this morning is consider a few representative examples in each of these divisions and to understand Christ's claim about his suffering and glory. So we'll start with Moses. Paul said to Agrippa that he was only speaking of what Moses and the prophets had said when he preached Christ would suffer and rise on the third day. Jesus said to the Jews, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Where does Moses talk about Christ's suffering? And what should the Jews have believed from Moses' words? Well, I'm glad that you asked. We're going to consider that this morning. First off, when Jesus and the apostles refer to Moses, they are sometimes referring to specific things that Moses said that are recorded in the scriptures. And other times they're using this as a kind of shorthand for the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, since Moses is the author of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So in this sense, they use Moses interchangeably uh, with the word Torah or law. So believing Moses can mean uh, believing what is written in Genesis through Deuteronomy, or it can mean things Moses specifically said. And this is important because Christ is spoken of in both of these senses. Moses himself prophesied about Christ in Deuteronomy 18. He said this, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet from me, or like me, from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
So now in one respect, this uh, passage refers to God setting up the institution and the office of prophet in Israel. Throughout her history, he would raise up various uh, prophets uh, to come among her and to proclaim God's word to her. Like Moses, he would bring the word to the people. He would be the face of God to the people. And that sense, it's fulfilled throughout the history of Israel. But in a much fuller sense, Christ is the fulfillment of the prophet. Christ is the final and true word that the Father has spoken. And it's in that sense that Peter and Stephen interpret Deuteronomy 18 in their sermons. And just as Israel's wicked leaders had a history of killing these prophets in Israel, so would Christ be rejected and killed at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. But Peter tells his hearers in Acts 3, quoting this passage, that God raised up his servant. Even though they killed him, God raised up in the sense of raised from the dead. Moses is using God raised up a prophet, and we think he's bringing a prophet among them. Peter interprets this as referring to Christ's resurrection. They take raise up as a prophecy of the final and true prophet's resurrection. Moses spoke about Christ through events as well. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel complain against the Lord. They complain against Moses in the wilderness, and so the Lord sends judgment on them in the form of fiery serpents that come and bite and kill many of them. And Moses intercedes for them, and he prays to the Lord, and the Lord tells him to make a bronze serpent and put it on a flagpole and raise it up for them to look upon and be healed and saved from their death. And Jesus says in John 3, that was about me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is raised up to save people from the judgment for their sins. Moses also spoke about Christ through institutions like the sacrificial system and the temple. The sacrificial system showed, that, showed people that sin separates us from a holy God. And the only way back into God's presence, the only way back to true communion with God is through death and resurrection. The sacrifice of a pure and spotless lamb and the ascending smoke to communion with God. Moses also spoke about Christ through characters in Israel's history. And we'll just give one example here. Joseph. Joseph is a miracle baby from a barren womb. His brothers are envious of him, and they're afraid of him becoming a ruler over them. He's sold for 20 pieces of silver, and he goes down into a dark pit. Joseph is an innocent and a righteous sufferer, but his suffering leads to glory. His death leads to resurrection. He is raised up from his grave-like prison, and he ascends to the throne of Egypt, where he rules in wisdom, so that blessing in the form of literal life-giving bread, might flow to the nations. And we could go on and on with other figures like Abraham and Jacob and David who go through suffering that leads to glory. But you get the point. God doesn't just deliver these men from their suffering, but through their suffering, 
He brings about glory and blessing for his people. Jesus said that all the prophets spoke concerning his suffering and glory. We could talk about uh, Jonah's death and resurrection in the belly of the whale. We could talk about Ezekiel's valley of dry bones being raised to new life. We could talk about Daniel 12 and the great resurrection that is prophesied there. Hosea and the third day resurrection. But for the sake of time, we'll focus in on our Old Testament text this morning. Isaiah was a prophet that God raised up for the time of Israel's exile into Babylonian captivity. Israel was under God's judgment for their sins and their rejection of him as their king. Isaiah 52 and 53 is a prophecy about Yahweh's servant, who's this mysterious individual in Israel, but somehow represents Israel corporately. And this servant, we're told, acts wisely, that he's highly exalted, lifted up, that he goes and sprinkles the nations. But he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This suffering servant bears the grief and carries the sorrow of the people. He's esteemed by the people to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, to be God-forsaken. He's pierced and crushed for the sins of the people. He bears sins, he bears the curse, and he heals Israel's wounds. He takes on the chastisement that the people deserved, and he brings peace with God. He bears the judgment of God for the sin of the people. He becomes the guilt offering that pleases the Lord. The servant's humiliation and his downfall is a display of strength and deliverance. What looks like a defeat is in fact a triumph. And in this way, Christ's suffering in Isaiah 52 to 53 is a revelation of his glory. The Psalms also speak of the suffering and glory of Christ. Many of the Psalms record David's own suffering, his struggles against Saul and other enemies uh, as, a, as Israel's anointed king. But these Psalms also look forward to a future Davidic king who was promised, whose throne will be established forever, David's greater son. Psalm 22 moves from death to resurrection, from suffering to glory. Jesus quotes the beginning of this Psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This Psalm is ultimately fulfilled in the cross and the resurrection. The gospel writers include many allusions in their passion narratives to the images of this psalm. The mocking that Jesus receives at the cross are the words of the mockers in Psalm 22. Can't he save himself? His hands and feet are pierced, but his bones are not broken. Jesus' clothes are divided up and his enemies cast lots over them. Jesus knows he will not be delivered from death, because he freely lays down his life unto death. But he knows that he will not remain dead. He knows that the Lord hears his cry, hears his prayer. And in fact, the latter half of that psalm is the resurrection. He will rise to tell of the Lord's name to his brothers. In the midst of the congregation, he says, I will praise you. As Psalm 16 says, you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. 
Psalm 22, like many of the Psalms, begins in sorrow and suffering, but ends in praise and glory. Now we've barely scratched the surface, uh, but even with what little we've seen, the scriptures proclaim the Christ's suffering and glory. The Lord of history, who is sovereign over all things, has been weaving together a story of suffering and glory, death and resurrection. Peter said that this all happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's not as though, again, Jesus is cherry-picking a few isolated texts that vaguely point to him. No, the whole of the scriptures, the entire story, has been speaking about him and anticipating him. This is a divinely ordered plan. We're told in the New Testament that he was made manifest at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And God raised him from the dead and gave him a glorious kingdom to inherit. So with that, let us now turn our attention to the meaning of Christ's suffering and glory. It seems clear from the disciples that no one was expecting a suffering Messiah. Sure, they knew the suffering servant, uh, but it's doubtful that they understood that to be Israel's Messiah King. That's clear with Cleopas, who confesses in our gospel text, we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel, but he was condemned to death and even crucified. So these two things don't go together for Cleopas. Redeeming Israel and being condemned to death on a cross are mutually exclusive. Likewise, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms this confession by telling him that my father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. But then Jesus goes on to explain to them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. But Peter sees this as a complete contradiction to what he had just confessed about Jesus being the Christ. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you, he says. Peter would try to stop Jesus from walking this path again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he pulls out his sword and chops off an ear to try to stop Jesus from being arrested. Peter tempts Jesus to seize the kingdom without the cross. He tempts him to take the glory without the path of suffering. And of course, Jesus tells him to get behind me, Satan. The disciples were familiar with revolutionary would-be messiahs who died at the hands of the Romans, radicals who sought to overthrow the Roman government and ended up on a cross. Jesus saying that this was his plan seemed like a very odd plan for a messiah, much like a team captain saying that our first play for this game is to forfeit the game, or a general of an army devising a strategy where he has himself killed in the first battle. To the disciples, a messiah who gets killed is no messiah at all. But what Cleopas did not understand was that it was precisely through Jesus' suffering and death on a cross that he would redeem Israel and be raised in glory. 
What Peter did not understand was that the Messiah would be victorious through an apparent defeat. He would bring life through death. The New Testament speaks of the meaning of Christ's suffering from a few different angles that we've already begun to hint at here. Peter says, picking up again on Isaiah's language in Isaiah 52 and 53, says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That he died to save us from God's just wrath and punishment. He has reconciled us to God by the death of his son. And he brings peace with God and man. He unites all of humanity in his death by breaking down the wall of hostility. And gives his spirit to Jew and Gentile alike. Christ's death offers a pleasing sacrifice once and for all to God. And we're also told that his death was uh, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And he died to defeat death, the last enemy. So Christ's suffering fulfills all the types and shadows of the Old Testament and fulfills the definite plan of God by redeeming humanity. But his suffering, just like those Old Testament types, also leads to glory. The path of his suffering ends in glory. And of course, his glory is the resurrection on the third day and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Because Jesus was raised, we know that his offering was pleasing to God and acceptable. Ephesians calls it a sweet-smelling aroma. God was pleased with what Jesus offered. His resurrection is his vindication that everything he said was true and that all that he did was righteous. Because Jesus is raised, we know he is the Son of God in power. The resurrection means that Christ won, that he has the victory, that he was victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And his resurrection marks the beginning of a new creation. He has ushered in a new order as a new Adam in a new heaven and earth. When Christ ascends into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is now the God-man who rules as Lord and King over all of earth and heaven. He is a new and greater Adam who takes dominion over all things. His glory also has a future dimension to it. He will return to be the judge of the living and the dead. All will see him in his glory and all will be set right in the world and his kingdom shall have no end. But the story of the scriptures does not end with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The Christ, for whom it was necessary to suffer and be glorified, sent his spirit upon his church at Pentecost. We see through the book of Acts, the apostles and the church carrying the announcement of Christ's suffering and glory to the very ends of the earth. And they're not merely preaching this message with their mouths, but they're also following the pattern in their lives. Like Stephen, suffering unto glory. They're following in his steps of suffering unto glory. 
Just as suffering and glory was necessary for Christ, so for those who are in union with him is the same path necessary. We who have been baptized into Christ are in union with him. We're one with him. And we're being conformed into his very image. And that includes sharing in the path to glory through suffering. Now, to be sure, Christ's suffering is unique. Our suffering doesn't atone for our sins or for the sins of the world. Well, his does. But the New Testament is clear that believers participate in, they share in Christ's suffering and his glory in several ways. And for the remainder of our time, I want to consider a few ways in which we share in both his suffering and his glory. So let's consider three ways that we share in Christ's suffering. First, we share in Christ's suffering and death through the death of our old self. Paul says, in our baptisms, we have died. In Romans 6, Paul tells us that being united with Christ in baptism means that our old self has been crucified and that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Okay, Paul says this again in, in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In this way, the Christian life is a continual putting off of the old man and a continual rising and putting on of the new man. A continual death and resurrection. Because we have a new identity, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. So that's primary. Secondly, we share in Christ's suffering through persecution and hostility in the world. Just as the darkness did not understand Christ the light and wanted to kill him, so Christians can expect opposition and hostility from a sinful world. Paul tells the Philippians, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been given to you as a gift. This is part of your calling as a Christian is to suffer for Christ. Jesus calls any who would follow him to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow me. Now these persecutions, of course, look different uh, for the church in different parts of the world and in different periods of history. But so long as there is sin in the world, there will be resistance to Christ and his word. Jesus exhorts us to rejoice when this happens because glory and reward awaits us because we have the honor of being like him and bringing honor to him through our suffering. And we see the apostles in Acts doing this very thing. They start having parties whenever one of them gets beaten by the Sadducees or by the the chief priests. They're excited that they get to share in this union with Christ in this very tangible way. They're standing for righteousness in a world that is hostile to Christ. And that is a sharing in Christ's suffering. Third, our sharing in Christ's suffering means that all of our sufferings, persecution or otherwise, and our death are transformed by Christ. In a fallen world, everybody experiences suffering. Because of the fall and because of sin, pain, suffering, and death are just a reality for everybody. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is the path or the trajectory that that suffering is moving us towards. 
For the non-Christian, suffering drives to despair, to bitterness, to hatred of God and others, to alienation. But for the Christian, suffering is a refining process, removing the dross so that the pure gold remains. For the unbeliever, suffering drives them away from God. For the believer, suffering drives us further into the heart of God. Augustine wrote his famous work, The City of God, just after the sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410. And he's got, he has an apologetic for Christian suffering within the, the book. He's discussing uh, the suffering that took place at the hands of these Visigoths to both the wicked and the righteous. Many of them were receiving uh, the same types of attacks, the same kinds of suffering. But Augustine said there's a difference. He says this, Thus, under the same affliction, the evil detests and blaspheme God, but the good prays and pray to him. What is really important then is not the character of the suffering, but rather the character of the sufferer. Stirred by the same motion, filth gives out a foul stench, but perfume a sweet fragrance. Both the wicked and the righteous experience suffering, sometimes what looks like the same kind of suffering from the outside. But Jesus transforms our sufferings such that the outcome is not the same. For the Christian, our suffering is never meaningless or pointless. They have a purpose, the testing and strengthening of our faith. God is working in your suffering to strengthen your faith. Peter tells us in our epistle lesson, don't be surprised when you're suffering, but rejoice because God is using suffering to test and to purify your faith. James says the same thing. Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials because that's God working in you to test your faith, to increase your perseverance. And we can give thanks for them because trials keep us trusting in our Heavenly Father. Peter exhorts us to entrust ourselves to God in the midst of suffering. Commit yourself to your heavenly Father, just as Jesus committed himself unto the Father going to the cross, as he committed himself to the Father on the cross. Jesus doesn't suffer and die so that we don't have to, but he does transform our death and our suffering. He removes the sting of death so that we don't have to fear it. And he secures glory for us on the other side of suffering and death. He bore the cross so that we can take up our crosses and follow him. Our sufferings are caught up into the sufferings of Christ in a mysterious way, such that we will be raised to victory in a resurrection life like his. Our path to victory includes laying down our lives for the sake of others. Jesus endured the cross and despise the shame because of the joy that was set before him. And so not only can we look beyond our trials, but we can rejoice in hope that we are going to share in Christ's glory. So let's briefly consider three ways that we share in that glory. First, in the present we have the spirit of glory, is what Peter calls the spirit, a down payment of this future inheritance, this future glory. When Christ ascended into glory, he sent the comforter to his people to comfort and strengthen them in the midst of their sufferings. Paul says to the Corinthians, 
As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The Spirit brings us joy and refreshment to our souls through the Word and through the people of God who bring comfort. The God of all comfort comforts us in trials and suffering so that we might bring that comfort to those who are afflicted. When the Lord brings you through trials, He not only strengthens and tests your faith, but He gives you the comfort of the Spirit that you may share that comfort with others. Secondly, we share in the glory of Christ through the resurrection of our bodies. Just as we're united to Christ in His death, so we will be united with Him in His resurrection. And because Christ is raised from the dead with an imperishable body, we will be raised and never die again. So we can undergo suffering joyfully because of the hope of glory on the other side. We can walk through the valley of the shadow of death because Christ, who went down to Sheol and triumphed, is with us and will raise us with Him. Lastly, we share in the glory of Christ by being granted the privilege of being co-heirs of the world to come and co-rulers with Christ. While the Spirit is the deposit or the down payment of our inheritance, Scripture tells us that our full inheritance is to reign with Christ in the world to come. Paul says that we have been seated with Christ already in the heavenly places. And if we endure to the end, we shall reign with Him in the world to come. We will be vindicated just as He is, and we will share in the glory of His new creation. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and be raised in glory. God in his great mercy and love and in his perfect wisdom has orchestrated a plan to deal with our sin and deliver us from darkness and death into his marvelous light and glory. Christ has given us a share in that suffering and glory that we might be made perfect through suffering and be raised to glory unimaginable. Paul considered the the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. This light and momentary affliction is only a preparation for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.